welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to today's macro call. You know, ACG Analytics stands at the intersection of capital markets and public policy. There is a slight slowdown in public policy developments uh, this Easter week in the United States, but not around the world. Leading the call will be Chris Serwinski, our lead international analyst. Joining Chris will be John East, our head of research. Nothing goes out without John's imprimatur. Also, our expert on central banks and rates, John Turek. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Serwinski. Chris? Thank you very much, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. Things are slow here in Washington, D.C. this week, but we have some very impactful news, Johnny. Infrastructure is obviously the big topic throughout the United States and really in the the world. It's probably the most impactful macro policy issue that, that we're covering at the moment. In Washington, D.C., the Biden administration had put forward a proposal for around $2.25 trillion in new spending. A lot of that hinges upon the process and how the Biden administration moves forward, either with reconciliation, which would not require any Republican support, or moving forward on a bipartisan basis. You said previously that, you know, you think that although the administration put forward a proposal with the goal, at least on the on the surface, of getting Republican support, that really they're aiming at reconciliation. Now, the Senate parliamentarian ruled earlier this week and really opened up the opportunity to pass even more bills under this reconciliation process. So why don't you update us on what the parliamentarian ruled and the impact on the legislative agenda coming up? So the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, put a request in to the Senate parliamentarian to see if an unused section of the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 can be used to modify a reconciliation instruction in the same fiscal year. And she ruled yes. If you look at the statute, I think it was quite clear that reconciliation has always been able to be used in this way. In theory, reconciliation does not always have to be partisan, but it, it is partisan when it's really not being used for deficit reduction, which it is no longer being used. Lawmakers have always had, in theory, an unlimited number of reconciliation bills. That's theory. That's not been practice. It's actually difficult to tee everything up, go through what we call voterama, get the House and Senate to agree on budget allocations. It eats up a lot of Senate floor time even though it's an expedited procedure. But so this is now available to Democrats. This is a change from a previous parliamentarian's ruling in 2001, which seems to have contradicted the statute. It's not clear, though, if Democrats will, in fact, use now a third reconciliation bill to split the infrastructure package. We only have half of it so far. That's the $2.25 trillion that you referenced. Probably going to end up being more like $4 trillion when you when you have the two halves. It's not clear whether Democrats will, in fact, combine the bill or not. They're still evaluating their options. I don't see from a mathematical standpoint why it makes a terrible lot of sense not to combine the bill because as of next week, when we have a new congresswoman sworn in from Louisiana, Democrats will only be able to lose two votes on their side in the House. That's a very narrow amount of votes, barring any other further vacancies or excused absences. Sometime this summer, it may go back up to three, but it's still, you can't lose 
member on the House side. And on the Senate side, you can't lose a single member. So how does House splitting things up to give some lawmakers a pass in not voting for a combined package is unclear because you can only give that pass to basically no one. But what it does do is it, it now establishes precedent that Democrats can use and presumably future Republican Senate that you can amend the reconciliation instructions and pass more things. However, what can be done under reconciliation has not changed. And it's unclear whether using this section of the act will have any other effects on the process. I don't see why it would, but we haven't gotten to that point yet. And that means that Democrats could try to move if they decide to keep the package combined as a floor strategy means they could try to do something on immigration reform or any number of other priorities, although those other priorities do not necessarily lend themselves very well to reconciliation because they're substantive law as opposed to simply affecting the federal budget. So then, you know, thinking about this, you, you reference on the Senate side, they can't lose anybody. Tell me about the importance of Mansion and potentially, you know, cinema and, you know, what their preferences are for the content of this package. Mansion and cinema are important, but in the chamber, now every single person is of equal weight. The difference is that senators like Manchin are less likely to tow the party line. So one major development that did happen this week, even though Congress is in recess until next week, is that Senator Manchin came out saying that he will not support increasing the corporate tax rate to 28%, which is in the Biden proposal, was a campaign promise, and that he does not want to go above a 25% rate. Now, that doesn't necessarily include other international changes to the tax code or a minimum tax, something like that. But it does mean that the amount of money that you might have been able to get from raising the rate to 28% is now reduced. It looks like going to 25, forgetting any other changes, would only net you about 400 billion. Of course, that's not nothing, but it's less than it would otherwise be. But Manchin is also someone who wants the infrastructure bill paid for or largely paid for, which means that other changes to the tax code, either on the corporate side or the personal side, may have to be adjusted in order to secure his support. Yeah, you know, and that, that makes me think, too. So you, you referenced that some pieces, you know, may or may not conform to reconciliation. Just think about the process moving forward now that, you know, we have this, this ruling from the parliamentarian. Does this beat it up in your eyes? To my mind, this doesn't change the basic problem confronting Democrats, which is how to get all their members on board. There are going to be highly divisive things in there, but you have to keep basically everyone on board. So I don't see how this ruling materially affects the process, but Democrats now know that they have a second shot at doing something, and you could find out that some lawmaker would be willing to vote for one half of the package and not the other, and so you still get half as opposed to the whole thing collapsing. But it it's not clear. Democrats have not decided on how they're going to proceed in terms of whether they're going to pursue one bill or two. There is going to be an attempt to get Republicans on board when Congress reconvenes. I believe those talks will fail. And so we will have a reconciliation bill. And if you look at President Biden's proposal, it doesn't really look like a proposal that would be an offer. And then you would negotiate with Republicans and try to get some on board. You know, you need 10 or so in order to pass things under regular order that could be doable under a traditional infrastructure bill. But this bill has things 
isn't it like 400 billion for long-term care? That was something that was originally part of drafts of Obamacare. It was something that Senator Kennedy wanted to accomplish before he passed away during those negotiations. And it got dropped because it was too expensive. And so now it's back. Even by a very expansive definition of infrastructure, it's difficult for me to see how long-term care counts as infrastructure. But that is in the proposal. There are other things in the proposal that I think will have to fall out because I don't see how they would beat reconciliation rules. And those are those have to do with substantive policies regarding a unionization that many Republicans feel would preempt state sovereignty and make, uh, you know, about roughly half of the state, likely more than half, are right-to-work states. Those tend to be Republican states. And a lot of Republicans feel that the proposals that are, are embedded in the larger administration proposal would basically take away the authority of their state to be a right-to-work state. I don't see how that makes it in. There is an argument that it affects how much you pay workers with federal money, and so therefore it can survive reconciliation. I find that to be a rather weak argument. But basically, this looks like it was a proposal designed for reconciliation in the end and never for negotiation. So then, you know, just looking forward, what else, you know, what are some guideposts and signs we should be looking for that are going to, you know, give us some insight into where we go? Is the budget released on Friday impactful in any way, shape, or form? It doesn't affect this directly, but it does show where things that didn't get in the proposal may be goals that Democrats will pursue. So, for instance, the White House is still going to work with Congress to pass a five-year transportation bill reauthorization that is going to include more money for infrastructure, which is one of the reasons the infrastructure money in, in this infrastructure proposal is rather low compared to what lawmakers could otherwise have accepted. It's about $620 billion if you don't count Amtrak, which gets more than $80 billion. And prob- you probably could have gotten 10 Republican votes to go up to a trillion dollars. So some of that may be made up in a freestanding infrastructure bill. We'll see how those negotiations go, though, because this bill may sort of tank the regular transportation reauthorization, which is routinely delayed past the five-year reauthorization window. But the forthcoming budget release does not have a direct effect on this process. Understood. And so then before we move out of D.C., just I think your expectation last week was all in, we'll have around $4 trillion spending. And I think you said $3 trillion in tax. Was that correct? And do you stand by that? Yes, I stand by that. These are rough. These are not official scores and things are still being tweaked and you're going to have people come out of the woodwork that oppose certain things. So for instance, almost half a trillion is going to come into the form of a bill that the House passed last year that was a priority of Speaker Pelosi and that entails prescription drug negotiation under Medicare Part D and in in some places a wider Medicare drug price negotiation. That may not survive, not because it wouldn't necessarily meet reconciliation rules, but we had a test vote on that in the Senate last year. Senator Menendez, a Democrat who opposed a much, much more modest bipartisan proposal that was put forward by then Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and the current Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden that would probably only have resulted in about $95 billion in revenue to the federal government over 10 years. So Menendez couldn't 
support that, which was bipartisan, is he going to be able to support something that is four times more than four times larger? That's a significant source of revenue. And right now, I'm hovering at around the $4 trillion and $3 trillion mark, but the proposals are still being tweaked, and lawmakers are wanting to add other things to the bill. So, for instance, a major one is a repeal or, more likely, a lifting of the state and local deduction cap, the SALT cap. It's very expensive to do, and that eats up into other Democratic priorities. So that's a discussion point, and then I'm looking to see in terms of priorities. Senator Wyden is working on the international taxation side, and so his proposals are going to be very important. He tends to be more liberal than the rest of the Democratic caucus, so I don't know what that what he proposes will remain unchanged in final legislation. He is the chairman of the Committee of Jurisdiction, and so he has a powerful voice in this process. And then there are other things that he wants to do, like a workaround to increase pressure on companies to raise the minimum wage that was ruled out of order because of the way it was drafted in the last reconciliation bill, which was the pandemic relief bill. So we're awaiting more another proposal to see if that would pass muster. I think it would. He would basically impose a payroll tax on quote-unquote mega companies. I don't know what that means, but large companies. If a single employee made less than the minimum wage. And then there's the whole question of how you categorize independent contractors. And another major source of revenue is changes to the estate tax. And it is quite clear from the proposal that Senator Van Hollen and others released about two weeks or so ago that it is in a very premature state of being drafted and they are soliciting input from the rest of their Democratic colleagues. But that's a lot of revenue and I think those are going to be very difficult discussions just because of the nature of a state tax planning. Yeah, so that, that's a lot to unpack there. Thanks, John. We will shift over to the IMF conversation here. John Turk, I'd love to get your view. It, the, the outlook was particularly rosy. They raised global growth expectations. I, I was a little bit surprised by that. Obviously, some of this is locked in three weeks ago. So prior to some of these new developments in like India, which had a, a very high growth expectation and prior to, you know, more details on the U.S. infrastructure package. Do you agree with the projection or is there anything you're in particular very uh, surprised about? Yeah, no, thanks, Chris. I mean, I think that there's definitely an element of, you know, especially pre the India news for emerging and developing Asia, the IMF had an 8.6% growth number. That's probably a little high if there's going to be, you know, some slowdowns there. I mean, I think probably, you know, the U.S. upgrade makes sense for 6.4%. That's pretty much where the Fed is for 2021 in terms of growth this year. I think that the the IMF report kind of showed two things. One, that growth is going to be really strong, but also very uneven, kind of looking at what they have for, you know, growth in Europe, which is around 4%. So it, it kind of, you know, elaborates on that theme. I think also in terms of thinking through, you know, the IMF, a lot, there was a lot of emphasis, something we also heard from Secretary Yellen, on making sure that fiscal support kind of phases the course. And I think that that probably a message also to the Europeans in terms of not having a premature withdrawal of fiscal support is like the economy is only going to start recovering their vaccination effort picks up steam. I think that it's not, maybe it is not overly optimistic. It does, you know, seem pretty fair to assume that the U.S. will grow six and a half, Asia will grow at seven, Europe will grow between three and a half and four and a half, but a lot of it is dependent on uh, forces outside of the virus, but also in terms of making sure that you no know, fiscal stimulus kind of maintains itself throughout the course of this year. 
So then, you know, some of the other things that were interesting here that coincided with the IMF meetings for me were this push from the U.S. administration and Janet Yellen in particular for a global minimum tax. And some of these efforts through the OECD to align international standards, I'm interested to see where those go, because I do think that, you know, all it's really been lacking has been, you know, some U.S. leadership and acceptance on this. But at the same time, there are going to be jurisdictions that are going to push back on some of these changes, obviously, because it's going to it's going to hurt them, I think, mainly like Ireland, for example. I guess my final question here on the IMF uh, WIO would, would really be, you know, you, you are relatively in line with them. You think that more or less they're correct. What are the risks to Europe, you know, moving forward now? Obviously, there's some related to the next-gen EU package, but it seems, and you pointed this out to me previously, that it seems like, you know, vaccination efforts are, are actually going a little bit better for the last couple of days than, than we expected. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's this pretty critical moment in Europe where we've kind of come from the theory in February was, okay, the vaccination efforts are slow, but, you know, in March they'll pick up. And, you know, in March they didn't pick up, so we were like, okay, in April they'll pick up. But now we're kind of in the critical juncture where, you know, the Europeans actually need to get their act together to preserve some semblance of normal in regards to the summer travel season. And we're, we are really starting to see that. I mean, Germany had its biggest day yesterday at around 650,000 vaccinations. We've seen France vaccination efforts pick up. So we are starting to see kind of the European vaccination program gain some steam. I mean, I think it's really important to emphasize that this kind of is the make it or break it month. I mean, you know, the market kind of treated February and March as a, you know, okay, that's less than ideal. But looking at European assets, you know, they traded pretty well under the assumption that, like, it would eventually resolve itself. And I think that, you know, going into, you know, the summer months, it's critical that Europe reaches at least some minimum threshold to have intercontinental travel come the summer. Because, you know, the European economy kind of breaks down into two things in terms of its export manufacturing machine and its summer travel. And we know that manufacturing and exports are going to be relatively robust with the U.S. and China growing at seven. But, you know, having that pickup in summer travel and a positive tourism season. Is, is pretty critical for Europe to meet a lot of these growth forecasts, especially the IMF number of, of 4%. Thank you very much. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.